I'm going to punch him out and I'm going to go to jail and I'm going to be happy. <laughs> you tell him, Nancy. Punch him out. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Not scared. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Well, maybe a little. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five exhausting days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, got a bunch of stuff to try to catch up with today, including some follow-ups uh, and updates to some stories that we have been covering over the past week or so, and a green news report that we, that we had to preempt uh, <laughs> on our previous broadcast to make room for our special coverage of Thursday's theoretically uh, final public hearing by the bipartisan House January 6th committee investigating Donald Trump's insurrection and his many failed attempts to steal the 2020 presidential election right before our very eyes. And in a way that is uh, remarkable to me that the bulk of the nation's media and Democratic politicians are still not describing it for what it blatantly was, an unprecedented, unprecedented effort by a sitting president to steal an election from the American people. Uh, we will uh, b- discuss, uh, well, uh, some follow-ups to that story and a bunch of others. One follow-up I want to hit just off right off the bat there, that clip from the at the top of the show that was Nancy Pelosi threatening violence, threatening to do <laughs> violence against at the, uh, the time the sitting president. Let's uh, play that. And so that was, Desi, that was from CNN got that Yes, CNN, CNN yeah. obtained this footage from Alexandra Pelosi, mm-hmm. uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's documentary filmmaker daughter. Mm-hmm. And she was there that day on January 6th, took all of this video. Much of it was submitted apparently to the January 6th mm-hmm. committee. But CNN, this they aired uh, some more video that has not been previously 
mostly publicly and, seen. And we we uh, they shared that during the uh, during the hearing on Thursday, and we shared some of it on the show and uh, re- discussed it with our guests that it was you know quite chilling seeing these lawmakers in there, knowing the Capitol was under attack at the time, trying to figure out what to do, how to save people's lives. There was. Nancy Pelosi was just gobsmacked at one point. We see here when she is told that they are putting on tear gas masks inside the House. Yes. She had been shuttled away with the other uh, leadership, both Republican and Democratic. But back at the House, there was a bunch of folks still in the chamber putting on gas masks at the time. Anyway, this is some extra footage uh, that CNN, I guess, uh, aired on uh, on Thursday night. Secret Service said... They have dissuaded him from coming to Capitol Hill. They told him they don't have the resources to protect him here. So at the moment, he is not coming, but that could change. I would come to him and punch him out. This is my mom. I've been waiting for this, for trespassing on the Capitol grounds. I'm going to punch him out, and I'm going to go to jail, and I'm going to be happy. She was angry. She was still at the Capitol at that time. Yep. Uh, I think the speech had his uh, rally had finished and he had told everyone to start marching to the Capitol. He said, right. I'll be there with you. And then you heard one of Nancy Pelosi's aides there saying, well, the Secret Service told him he can't come up. And now we know about that moment is that was the moment when uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, Mark Meadows aide, has told us that Donald Trump essentially attacked the Secret Service, attacked the driver in his car. Because he was enraged that they were not going to allow him. him to go to the Capitol to interrupt the peaceful transfer of power. Now, you tell, speaking of outrage, you tell me that Judicial Watches, watches Tom Fitton. Yes. Was apparently outraged about this clip <laughs> yeah. from Nancy Pelosi. So just to recap, the House January 6th committee had um, revealed some documentary evidence showing that Tom Fitton was one of the people who participated in Trump's premeditated plan to declare that he won the election on election night. And he actually drafted a memo for Trump to falsely declare victory on election night and then illegally demand that all vote counting be halted. Be stopped. And that was October 31. So that was a week before the election. They were already planning to declare that it had been stolen from them, that they won, they were that already they were going to stop the counting of legitimate votes. Yes, exactly. So after that clip of Nancy Pelosi saying, I'm going to punch Trump out because I'm mad, Tom Fitton was very, <laughs> very, very mad. He was outraged that then 80-year-old Nancy Pelosi <laughs> was threatening physical violence on then 74-year-old Donald Trump. On Thursday night, he said, quote, Pelosi wanted to physically attack the president of the United States. And then on Friday, he said, quote, January 6th show trial hearing sputtered to a conclusion with desperate attack on Trump as CNN pushed edited video of Pelosi (laughs) threatening violence on President Trump. Threatening violence on President Trump. Yes, 80-year-old Nancy. uh, 80-year-old Nancy and uh, on the guy who just sent tens of thousands of his supporters, who we now know he knew to be armed at the time, sent them to the Capitol. uh, To attack the Capitol. To attack on an armed insurrection. Uh, 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 well, no wonder Tom Fitton is delighted to have anything to uh, help distract us from the fact <laughs> that he was a coup plotter, that he was a coup plotter uh, well before the, uh, an election stealer, well before the uh, election day even happened.
As discussed on on our previous broadcast with our guests at the time, Heather Digby-Parton of Salon and Drift Glass of the ProLeft podcast, after detailing in no uncertain terms that the Secret Service and the Capitol Police were in fact tipped off well in advance that there was likely to be violence by pro-Trump attackers on January 6th. I'm sure Tom Fenton wants accountability for that, right? And that Donald Trump knew damned well that he had lost the election that he pretended was stolen from him and that he had planned long before Election Day, along with uh, conspiracists like uh, uh, Tom Fenton, to declare that the election was stolen from him. For which I must note there is there was then and now zero evidence to support the uh, the House committee ended their hearing with a big twist on Thursday when they voted unanimously to subpoena the disgraced former president for both documents and under oath testimony. Now, given the fact that Donald Trump is physically, psychologically and emotionally incapable of telling the truth about almost anything and that lying to Congress is a criminal offense for which people like Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohn, Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, Trump's longtime accomplice, henchman, dirty trickster, Roger Stone, were all actually sentenced to prison, though Stone was pardoned for it by Trump before he could actually spend any time in jail, And given that the committee itself will dissolve within 30 days, I believe, of the new Congress being seated next January, it is almost certain that the cowardly liar Donald Trump will try to delay everything to run out the clock to avoid having to testify and to avoid being held in contempt of Congress for not doing so as his uh, pal Steve Bannon uh, has been. His sentencing is uh, coming up soon, by the way. We can all look forward to that. He may get as much as two years in jail. We'll see. Uh, But, of course, uh, some, like Stephen Colbert, agrees that it would be just a terrible idea for such a stable genius like Donald Trump to testify publicly and under oath before the committee. The former president doesn't want the opportunity to defend himself on national television. I mean, even if he is the only person who could get up there and set the record straight and stick it to Liz Cheney and Adam Schiff and prove this whole thing is a witch hunt, I mean, it would be watched by too many people on the biggest stage in the world. I mean, he doesn't want to be the center of attention. He'd he'd get the highest TV ratings in history, but he doesn't want to go up there and yell to the committee, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. You also can't handle Truth Social, which is why no one is signing up, right? <laughs> so, so yes, don't do it. By all means, Mr. President, Mr. Former President, Mr. Disgraced Ex-President, don't do it. In the meantime, Trump's twisted congressional henchmen and henchwomen remain under his spell, and they attempted to go to bat for him after the committee's very well-reasoned and meticulously supported motion to call the disgraced former president in to speak for himself before the committee. GOP allies were slamming the unanimous vote by the bipartisan House Select Committee to subpoena Trump, deriding it as a political tactic ahead of the midterm elections on Thursday. House Republican Conference chairwoman, Elise Stefanik of New York, who used to be a normal person until she became infected with Trumpism, it seems, she is now the third ranking GOP member of the House after taking that role from Wyoming's Liz Cheney. 
who was removed for daring to uh, tell the truth and to vote for Trump's second impeachment for incitement of the Capitol insurrection. By the way, a bipartisan majority, I just need to remind, because a bipartisan majority of the U.S. Senate found Donald Trump guilty of inciting the insurrection. And uh, they tried to uh, remove him from, they voted to remove Trump from office for it at the end of the impeachment trial. And I know media and Trump himself like to describe that as having, as him having been acquitted of, of inciting the riot. Well, he, that's only true because to remove a president from office, there's a very high bar to remove them from office via an impeachment trial. It requires a vote of two-thirds of the entire Senate. Now, in this case, the vote was 57-43, with seven Republican senators joining all of the Democrats. But seven Republican senators joined them. And even though he was found guilty of inciting an insurrection to overthrow the U.S. government by a bipartisan majority of the Senate... You know, that's unhelpfully reported as if he was acquitted of inciting the riot. A majority voted in favor of the fact that he incited this insurrection. A bipartisan majority. But you need a really high bipartisan majority in order to remove him from office. So that's what they call acquitted. I was acquitted. I didn't do it. In any event, Stefanik, the third-ranking Republican in the House now, she brushed off the Trump subpoena on Thursday as a, quote, political ploy. She said today's subpoena of President Donald J. Trump less than one month from the midterm elections is a desperate political ploy by Democrats and their mainstream media stenographer allies. Uh, In her statement after the hearing, she said the uh, the American people are smart and the Democrats abuse of power will only energize the American people to fire Nancy Pelosi once and for all and deliver a red tsunami that will elect a historic Republican majority to hold Joe Biden accountable. OK, maybe Republicans are favored to win back the House majority in November's midterms, which would end the second speakership term of Uh, Nancy Pelosi. Congressman Ronnie Jackson, Republican of Texas, remember him, the man who also went crazy after becoming infected with Trumpism disease while serving as his White House doctor. Well, he tweeted that the committee is all caps out of control. Out of control? Subpoenaing President Trump is a disgrace in all caps. They want to destroy Trump and (laughs) every one of his supporters. The more caps, the better. Yeah, apparently, uh, according to this idiot, disgraced, doctor-turned-looney-tunes congressman, uh, Ronnie Jackson, Congressman Andy Biggs of Arizona, former chair of the so-called House Freedom Caucus, tweeted that the Trump subpoena is a, quote, political hatchet job by a political hatchet committee. This committee is illegitimately formed in violation of House rules and is organized to search and destroy perceived political enemies, said Biggs. Actually, in fact, several courts, federal courts, have found repeatedly that the committee is not unlawful or in violation of anything, but I guess it's fun to pretend otherwise. The the theory, by the way, that the committee is somehow in violation of House rules Uh, This goes back to Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. He had appointed five of his members to the committee, but Nancy Pelosi rejected two of them. 
Jim Jordan and Jim Banks because they were likely to be witnesses to the crimes that were being investigated by this committee. And in response, McCarthy pulled all of his members from the from the committee. Now, Pelosi appointed two Republicans to it anyway, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. But if Republicans take over the House next year, apparently this means that all Pelosi needs to do is refuse to appoint any Democrats to any committee that is set up by Republicans, you know, for example, to uh, investigate Hunter Biden or whatever other nonsense they have planned. And the committee will then be completely illegitimate and in violation of House rules, so they won't be able to set up these committees at all, I guess, if we go by the Republican rules. And Nancy Pelosi says, okay, then I just won't appoint anybody to them. Are you guys thinking ahead? Overall, however, the Hill reports that House Republicans were far less active in online chatter for some reason during Thursday's hearing uh, than they were during previous hearings, but at least one of their tweets was actually quite amusing. The House Republican Conference, which is headed by Elise Stefanik, publicly attacked Sarah Matthews. She's the former deputy press secretary in the Trump White House because Matthews testified before the January 6th committee. Quote, just another liar and pawn in Pelosi's witch hunt. House Republicans tweeted about Matthews during the uh, January 6th hearing. That tweet, however, was quickly deleted. Mm. Why is that? Well, as a House GOP spokesperson told The Hill, quote, the tweet was sent out at the staff level and was not authorized or the position of the conference, and therefore it was deleted. Okay, but why was it really deleted? Well, for a start, the tweet garnered public blowback and criticism. Elisa Farrah Griffin, she's the former White House strategic communications director under Trump. She also testified to the committee like dozens and dozens and dozens of other Trump administration officials who the uh, House Republicans Twitter account did not attack. But she took aim, Farrah Griffin did, at Stefanik because of that tweet. Uh, she tweeted, uh, Farrah Griffin did, uh, Congressman Stefanik, a woman I once admired, is allowing the official House GOP account to be used to defame a fellow Republican woman for bravely testifying before Congress under oath. Shameful, she said. Glad the tweet was taken down, she later added. Matthews had offered testimony, of course, to the J6 panel about what she saw on January 6th. She described... Uh, one tweet that was sent by Trump during the insurrection as giving a, quote, green light to those attacking the Capitol. But the real reason that the House GOP account deleted the tweet attacking Matthews, well, Sarah Matthews actually works for the House GOP. Oops. She's currently the communications director for the Republican staff on the House Climate Crisis Committee. I guess someone forgot to tell super genius Stefanik or her staffers that the woman that she was attacking actually works for them. So that's the kind of clown show that is uh, likely to be heading up the U.S. House of Representatives next year. What a joy.
Can I also note, just for the moment, you that, <laughs> that okay. Nancy Pelosi, we saw Nancy Pelosi yeah. in that video calling for National Guard help, calling anybody she could to get help from the National Guard, yep. calling governors, calling Defense yep. Department. And if you'll notice, Steve Scalise, Representative Steve Scalise, is on those videotapes mm-hmm. hearing her say these things. Yep. But for the last year and a half, he's been saying that Nancy Pelosi refused to call out the National Guard. <laughs> so he's just been lying this whole time. I, I, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have to see that for myself. But yes, that is exactly the type of clown show, uh, liar show, I don't know what to call it, that we can expect next year. You have been warned. Please, please go out and vote this November. Go out and vote now, for that matter. Early voting has already begun in, in many states. We will have more on that in a little bit. Uh, meanwhile, on Friday, the cowardly liar Trump himself issued what he characterized as his official response to the January 6th Select Committee after the panel voted to subpoena him. I don't know that it's his official response because, in fact, they have voted to subpoena him, but they actually haven't, I don't believe, sent the actual subpoena to him yet. So nothing is actually official. But despite issuing this 14-page document in response to not yet actually being subpoenaed, uh, he didn't actually say whether he was going to testify or not. Now, the document is actually a four-page letter from Trump It appears to have actually been drafted by yet another person who used to work for that uh, One America News Network, uh, who also had an attorney, Christina Bob, who's in a whole bunch of trouble because she's the one who testified that Trump had returned all of the stolen documents and actually hadn't and so forth. So. Uh, We'll see. In any event, this is someone else who used to work on this far right phony uh, news network that Trump has hired away, who appears to have drafted this thing. In any event, uh, it's a four page letter uh, that clearly assumes anyone who might read it had not seen more than about 10 seconds of the committee's 10 hearings over the past year, because it begins this way. Dear Chairman Thompson, he's the chair of the House Select Committee. And then in all caps, the presidential election of 2020 was rigged and stolen. (laughs) So they just spent the last year kind of proving otherwise and proving that Donald Trump knew otherwise. Yet he's assuming all of his followers are idiots. No comment. Anyway, he went on to uh, rehash a multitude of critiques that he and his Republican allies have previously lodged against the panel, along with a long list of all his other grievances as well regarding the investigation into Russia's well-documented interference in the 2016 election, his two impeachments, etc., 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 four pages of that. And then... Two pages of photos of the crowd at his rally on January 6th. Oh, dear. Because, you know, if there were thousands of people there, that obviously means that he received more votes than Joe Biden in the 2020 (laughs) election or something. Then there's a bunch of pages described as an appendix detailing uh, long ago investigated, long ago debunked claims about the election results in Arizona, 
Michigan, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. All states that Donald Trump lost in 2020 and where multiple recounts and post-election audits, etc., etc., have confirmed his losses in those states. He then rambles on again at the end of this, at the end of what's supposed to be the appendix. He then starts rambling on again uh, about Hunter Biden's laptop and the FBI and other nonsense uh, before stating, quote, there are many other facts and discrepancies that we are not presenting at this time due to time constraints. <laughs> I'm not sure what the time constraints are. He hasn't even been subpoenaed yet yeah. officially. So uh, due to time constraints, uh, but that are also election determinative. At your request, I will present these additional numbers to you. But everything already presented would change the final election result many times over. So cool. He says he will present these uh, additional numbers to you. Cool. Go in and do it, Mr. Former President. I'm sure you will have no problem doing so under oath. You'll be great. Go do it, sir. By the way. Nothing prevents him from going in long ago. They, the committee put out an invitation that anyone who wants to come to talk to us, they are happy to hear from him, from them. So Donald Trump, who also complained about, well, they waited until the very end, until the end of this investigation, until right before the midterms, until right before the committee was going to break up to invite me in. Well, yeah. Uh, no, they actually waited until the end to subpoena you to go in. You could have gone in any time. But you didn't because you're a coward and a liar. And even you know that lying to Congress is a crime. Writing at The Nation this morning in a piece headlined, Thank you, January 6th committee. Now it's Merrick Garland's turn. Joan Walsh concludes at the end, quote, I think this committee has done its part for democracy. I feel indebted. But the next step is for Attorney General Merrick Garland to indict this low rent criminal. I'm fascinated, she writes, by all of the all of the Mar-a-Lago intrigue. It's clear he stole documents. He ought to go away for that, too. But the January 6th committee's stunning hearings have proven that Trump knew he lost and nonetheless tried to first steal the election and second, overthrow it by force. If that's not criminal, we are no longer a nation of laws, writes Joan Walsh. First, did you hear that? She actually used the accurate words to describe, <laughs> to describe what happened. She said Trump tried to steal the election. Thank you, Joan. She follows me on Twitter, uh, which... Maybe that helped. I don't know. <laughs> You've been you, saying it often enough. Yeah, Maybe of. it will start to permeate yeah. as people realize what the actual word for this is. You can also follow me on Twitter. I am the Brad Blog. But at the conclusion of our previous special coverage show with Digby and Driftglass talking about the hearing, um, covering what might be their final hearing, I asked which, if any of the many crimes that Trump is currently being investigated for, that he actually will be indicted on? Would it be the January 6th attempt to overthrow the government in hopes of stealing the election? Or would it be for the thousands of documents that he stole from the White House, many of them highly classified upon leaving office? Uh, as I don't see how he can't be indicted at this point for that one down in Mar-a-Lago, given what we know. Anyway, Driftglass smartly noted, 
that um, for the rule of law to actually mean anything in this country, well, he actually needs to be indicted on both. There are two massive crimes among many other crimes that were committed, and they are both equally uh, treacherous, and Mm -hmm. they're both equally dangerous, and they both need to be treated with absolute, um, the full weight of the law needs to come down on both of them for very clear reasons. One is to protect the institution of the United States government. This cannot be allowed to happen again. This was this was a practice. This was rafters testing the fences. And if they ever get a chance to do it again, they're going to come right in day one and replace all the people with loyalists and stooges and flunkies and perverts. Yep. <laughs> and that will just they'll, that'll be the last election. Yeah. The other one is you cannot have anyone in the government, much less the chief executive of the government, as a spy, as a person mm. who stole any documents. One page is enough. People go to jail for three pages. People are reprimanded for one page. Mm-hmm. This guy stole crates and crates and crates of the most sensitive secrets of the United States and lied about it and lied about it again and lied about it a third time. That is a separate and distinct act of treason. And separately, they're disastrous. If you put them together, it's like two halves of a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. It is, that's it. If you can't prosecute someone for that level of treason, yeah. and you can't prosecute the same person for attempting to overthrow the U.S. government, then it's already game over. You have to do both. I believe he's right. Yeah, sadly uh, he is. Now, it's very possible. That was Drift Glass on the broadcast yesterday. You can download that for free anytime if you want to hear the whole conversation with him and uh, Heather Digby-Parton at bradblog.com. In any event, it's very possible that indictments uh, really could start happening, you know, even as early as just as soon as we get past the November 8 election, since the DOJ has a policy to not make uh, public moves on such things in the 60 days prior to an election so as to not sway that election in a political sense either way. But of course, uh, Desi, you smartly reminded us uh, of not only those two cases that he's being federally investigated for, but also of the Fulton County uh, Georgia prosecutor, Fonnie Willis, and her ongoing criminal investigation into Trump's efforts to steal the election in the Peach State. That effort, that investigation is still very much moving forward uh, down in Atlanta as well. That includes a bunch of folks above and beyond Trump, including Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham and others who participated in this conspiracy to try and steal the Georgia election. They could all be facing felony charges. So we'll see after the election. Maybe it'll be a nice holiday season, no matter what happens in the November 8 election. Speaking of which, we've got some news on that as well, following up on a story that we covered earlier in the week regarding whether or not Florida is going to be able to hold elections at all following Hurricane Ian. That and more, including Desi Doyen's previously preempted Green News report. That's all straight ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. 
sunshine, damn yeah, everything. Well, unless there's a hurricane blowing in, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. No, there is not a new hurricane blowing into Florida. That is correct. Is there? No. We're sure? We're sure. Okay, not yet. well, yeah, it could happen any. Anyway, no, for now we're fine, uh, and we will get to uh, Florida in a moment because uh, we've got some news uh, following up on uh, on that, as I mentioned, uh, following up on Hurricane Ian and the elections coming up there. But you know how I always try to encourage folks, uh, our listeners, to become poll workers <clears throat> and, and poll observers and so forth? Well, that's not only because we really, really need poll workers all across the country, and you will be doing a civic service to your nation if you sign up to become one, but also, and you'll make it easier for people to vote, shorten the lines that people have to face in some areas of the country, but also because there's a whole bunch of folks on the right who are planning to do so. And while I do welcome them, no matter what side they're on uh, politically. And I think that most, especially once they see how elections actually work when they become poll workers, I think it'll actually help them gain confidence in the process a little bit and find that it's not quite so easy as they have been led to think to commit massive election fraud, at least without being caught as a poll worker. Anyway, um, Nonetheless, there are reasons to be concerned about some of those folks in some of the polling places, especially this year. As Politico reports this week, a social media influencer who implored a crowd to, quote, storm the gates of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, has been hired by a Michigan County clerk as the talent development specialist working with poll workers in one of the battleground state's biggest swing regions, according to an email obtained by Politico. The talent development official, Genevieve Peters, also joined armed members of the Proud Boys for a 2020 rally at the Michigan Capitol and live-streamed a so-called Stop the Steal protest outside the home of Michigan's Secretary of State. She's made numerous social media posts of herself mingling with Proud Boys, including marching alongside its leader, Joe Biggs, according to social media postings uh, by citizen that were discovered and collected by citizen journalists who have been tracking uh, some of these extremists. Peters, a Michigan native who has also lived in California, videotaped herself vowing on January, uh, vowing that January 6th was, quote, only the beginning. She has not yet been charged with any crime related to the Capitol insurrection. Macomb County Clerk Anthony Forlini, a Republican, told Politico that Peters was hired in May to help recruit poll workers. She applied for a position that was newly created in response to concerns of city clerks about staffing shortages ahead of the November midterm elections. That includes races for governor, secretary of state and attorney general in Michigan. Forlini said he is aware Peters attended the January 6th protests. I guess it didn't matter what she may have done, quote, in her personal life predates her work in his office, he said, because I'm sure she has turned over a new leaf since then. Noting, by the way, that he did not interview her himself on her LinkedIn page. Peters lists having served for six years as a contract election supervisor 
here in Los Angeles County, including training election inspectors and supervising polling preparations and training over uh, 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 polling staff. That might explain a thing or two here in L.A. <laughs> in any event, uh, Gen- uh, the uh, Forlini, the clerk, said Gen- uh, Genevieve is a part of looking at training procedures since most of her background is teaching and training. Forlini estimated that he is hitting his recruitment target of an equal mix of Democrat and Republican poll workers throughout the county. Okay. Contacted by Politico, Jake Rollo, a spokesperson for Michigan's Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, who is a Democrat, said the office is aware of Peter's appointment and they are monitoring the situation, including, quote, the potential challenges that may arise from it. Now, for the record, Macomb County had the third largest number of voters in Michigan in the 2020 election. It's the third most populous county after Wayne and Oakland counties, which include really the bulk of Detroit. Both of those counties went heavily for Joe Biden, while Macomb County, which also includes part of Detroit and the suburbs sort of to the north and east of it, well, that went plus eight for Donald Trump back in 2020. So I would say it's actually more of a Republican county than a swing region, as Politico characterized it. In any event, much of Peter's uh, selfie-style video footage has been removed for some reason from her Facebook page, but not before it was archived by individuals participating in a, quote, sedition hunters consortium that are keeping records on a January 6 evidence Web page. David Levine, a former elections official who wrote a recent paper on how to vet poll workers, said that he is, quote, deeply disturbed. By Peter's appointment, quote, I'm a big believer in repentance and that people take actions that they later regret. But absent a compelling circumstance or apology for her previous behavior, this is immensely problematic, said Levine, who is an elections integrity fellow for the Alliance for Securing Democracy. According to a January 6 evidence gallery crowdsourced by citizen journalists, Peters arrived with friends with a portable stage and loudspeakers at the west side of the Capitol. So she wasn't just attending. No, she was she was quite uh, prepared. Yeah. Uh, At the west side of the Capitol. Eventually, she told the crowd, quote, we have breached the Capitol. And that, quote, there is no better cause for being arrested than standing up for then-President Donald Trump. Speaking from her platform, she likened the movement to, quote, our 1776. We have breached the Capitol, said Peters. Move forward, she urged the crowd. Now she's recruiting poll workers in Michigan. A day later, local news station WXYZ played a portion of that footage. They described her as firing up the crowd. Peters had previously led Stop the Steel rallies in Detroit and Lansing. That Peters is playing a pivotal role in McCombs' election office illustrates how successfully some Trump loyalists and election deniers have found their way into official party and government roles. Rollo, the uh, secretary of state spokesman, said the state, quote, will not tolerate any breach of state voting laws and, quote, will seek full accountability for anyone who abuses their authority or interferes with the integrity of our our elections. That's good. Weeks before Peters live streamed herself outside the Capitol on January 6th, she also live streamed 
a uh, on Facebook a protest that included armed protesters outside the home of Secretary of State Benson chanting "Stop the steal." Remember that one? That oh yeah, the secretary was in putting up Christmas decorations with her, with her five-year-old her, son. Yeah. Yes. Well, and it was very scary for both of them. At the time, Peter said, according to multiple newspapers, quote, we are letting her know that we're not taking this BS election. We are not standing down. We are not giving up. You are not going to take this election from a man that has earned it completely 100 percent by a freaking landslide. Let me tell you, this ain't over, said Peters. She has since removed most of her social media postings on her website. In his Politico interview, the Forlini, the uh, himself, the Republican Macomb County clerk, would not acknowledge that Michigan's 2020 election had been fairly determined statewide. Even he wouldn't. He is confident, however, that Macomb County, their vote in 2020 was accurate. He said that's because he audited his computer servers. Meanwhile, more than 250 audits of the election in Michigan, in fact, confirmed its, quote, integrity and accuracy, according to the secretary of state's office. But it is not just the Democratic secretary of state in Michigan. A months long Republican led oversight committee investigation in the state Senate concluded that there was no widespread or systemic fraud and urged the state's attorney general. This is the Republican committee now urged the state AG to investigate and potentially arrest those who are making those kind of baseless claims that the election was stolen, stolen in Michigan. Or, I guess, you could hire them and, you know, to recruit and train all of your poll workers. Why worry? <laughs> Same thing. Peters, by the way, first gained national attention, you may recall her, in May of 2020 for recording herself refusing to wear a face mask at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic out here at a California Trader Joe's. That, that was rings her. A bell. Oh, that was her. Wow. Finally, uh, we began this past week with a conversation with Ion Sancho, who served for nearly 30 years as the legendary supervisor of elections in Leon County, Florida. That's home to the state's capital of Tallahassee. He was very concerned about the ability of the some of the state's hardest hit counties in Florida to be able to hold elections at all on November 8, following the recent devastation of Hurricane Ian there. The election supervisor, when we when we spoke with Ion, the election supervisor in the hardest hit county, Leon County, that's home to Fort Myers, had Lee County. Uh, Lee County. What did I say? Leon County. Okay, yeah. His old county. His, uh, this is about Lee right. County. This is a hurricane. whole different guy, whole different county. You're right. Um, he had uh, that election supervisor had released a plan to hold the November elections in that hard hit county by setting up, I believe it was 12 voting centers as opposed to 90 something uh, community precincts, 12 voting centers where anyone in the county could vote at any of those centers, along with expanded early voting days, uh, making it easier to uh, get uh, vote by mail absentee ballots to people, all of which is otherwise illegal in the state of Florida, at least short of an emergency declaration allowing it an emergency uh, executive order allowing it by the governor, who at that time that we spoke with Ion Sancho had yet to approve this plan in Leon County. 
And it was a plan that was similar to the one that had been approved by then-Governor Rick Scott just eight days after Hurricane Michael had slammed a much more rural part of the state back in 2018. And now we were talking to Ion, I think, when we spoke with him, it had been 12 days since Hurricane Ian had made landfall on one of the most densely populated parts of the state. And then, you know, raked its way up much of the rest of the state. And still, Governor DeSantis had yet to approve any plan for the election. And Sancho told us that, well, it maybe DeSantis was in a bit of a pickle because doing so would be politically difficult for him because a plan to expand early and absentee voting goes against The Republican Party's new pretend position that they don't like vote by mail. They don't like early voting. And it also goes against uh, some of the new election voting restriction laws that they have passed in Florida since 2020 to make it all harder. Further complicating that pickle uh, that DeSantis was or is in, the three hardest hit counties were all Republican-leaning counties. Well... We've got an update now on that story. As of yesterday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, more than two weeks after Ian made landfall, finally signed an executive order expanding early voting and voting by mail for the counties most heavily impacted by Hurricane Ian. The order applies to Florida's Lee, Charlotte and Sarasota counties, extends the early voting period from as early as October 24 through Election Day on November 8. It also increases the number of early voting locations. Voters in the three counties specified will additionally be allowed to request their vote-by-mail ballots be mailed to a different address than the one which they registered at. Very thoughtful of him. Although they will still be required to verify their identities using Uh, specific government IDs. Gosh, I hope they didn't all blow away with their houses. But hey, anyway, there's a plan now, right? At least there's a plan. There's a plan. Uh, Florida Secretary of State Cord Byrd, who in Florida is handpicked by the governor, serves at the governor's pleasure, wrote in a statement announcing the order, quote, in the wake of Hurricane Ian, the Florida Department of State has worked with Florida's supervisors of elections and Governor DeSantis to ensure that the 2022 general election is administered as efficiently and securely as possible across the state and in the counties that received the heaviest damage. Well, I reached out to uh, Ion Sancho, long one of the most respected election officials in the state, uh, at least until his retirement in 2016. I reached out to him for comment. He wrote back via email to tell me, well, the executive order grants the flexibility sought by the election officials in three of the most damaged counties, Charlotte, Lee and Sarasota. However, the order excludes all the other hurricane-damaged counties. Counties further inland had record flooding, displacing hundreds, perhaps thousands of citizens. Waiving written requests for mail ballot address changes, as was done for the three coastal communities, would have 
really served all citizens forced to relocate due to the damage. Yes, some of the flooding still has not receded in inland areas of Florida. Yeah, well, good luck to those people uh, being able to vote uh, because DeSantis doesn't want to make it any easier other than in those three counties for some reason. Ion adds in his email, complicating this procedure is the political dimension. The counties granted flexibility are heavily Republican. The hurricane hit counties further inland are much more Democratic leaning. Ah. Just saying, adds Ion. So there you go. You didn't think that uh, Ron DeSantis was going to, you know, do something just because it was the right thing to do (laughs) for Florida voters, did you? Anyway, the fight to save democracy continues, as does the fight for survival on the planet itself. That is next on your Bradcast and Desi Doyne's Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate. And thanks. So uh, this is interesting, Desi. We didn't have time to get it into our Green News report. But according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, uh, sales of gas and diesel passenger cars has already peaked. Peaked in 2017. uh, And most major oil market outlooks now acknowledge that oil demand from passenger cars, that too has already peaked or at least will soon. Yeah, it does appear based on sales, especially in China, which are going like gangbusters, it does appear that uh, the inflection point of the transition between gas and diesel cars to electric vehicles is happening faster than people expected. That's good news. Yes. Good news for anybody who breathes. By way of contrast, let's get to... Actually, you've got some good news as well in today's Green News Report. These weather disasters we report on are certainly adding up fast. The rising cost of our climate crisis. When it rains in the U.S., it pours more than ever, new study confirms. Plus... We're doing it not just for today, but for all the ages. Biden establishes the first national monument of his presidency. All of those establishments and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It's a permanent, permanent decision. An action that no future president can overturn. That is darling. This is your Green News Report. Okay, 
Okay, Desi Doyen, it has been a very difficult year when it comes to the climate crisis. And as it turns out, it's been a very expensive year, too. Yes, yes, it has been. 2022 is already a grim year for weather-related disasters in the U.S., and it is not over yet. The U.S. has seen $15 billion weather and climate-related disasters so far in 2022. Fifteen? Really? Fifteen. That is according to NOAA. Those are events like storms, fires, and floods that cause more than $1 billion in damage each, like Hurricane Ian, which is one of the costliest storms in U.S. history. Caused a lot more than $1 billion. It's about 50 or $60 billion at this rate. So far. The U.S. is tracking well above our long-term average for billion-dollar weather disasters. Back in the 1980s, the U.S. averaged about eight disasters a year. Now, we average 17 per year. Wow. In the 1980s, we'd see an average of eight 82 days between billion-dollar weather disasters. Now the U.S. on average gets only 18 days between disasters. The rising costs reflect the increase in the frequency of extreme weather and climate disasters and more people moving into vulnerable areas. Uh When it rains, it pours even more in the U.S. now, thanks to man-made climate change. Researchers at Northwestern University this week confirmed previous studies showing that it is raining harder in nearly every region of the United States. That's a long-term trend firmly linked to man-made global warming because a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. As global temperatures continue to rise, so will precipitation extremes. In other news, in Alaska, state fishery managers have canceled the fall Red King crab harvest and the smaller snow crab harvest in the Bering Sea due to population collapse. That's after a marine heat wave in 2019 scrambled the marine ecosystem. Last year's snow crab harvest was the smallest in more than 40 years. And so this year they've just canceled it altogether? Yes, to give the populations time to recover. Wow. But some good news. Not a moment too soon. In a new report, banking giant Credit Suisse projects that President Biden and the Democrats' landmark climate law, the Inflation Reduction Act, is likely to spur even more explosive growth in American clean energy industries than people expect. And it is already underway, with big clean energy and electric vehicle manufacturers announcing major investments in the United States. Honda this week announced it will open a 35 billion dollar battery production plant in Ohio to build EVs and EV components. Did you hear that, Ohio? That's your state. That's thanks to this president, those Democrats, and not one single Republican who voted for that bill. Just saying. EV battery manufacturer Our Next Energy is building a $1.6 billion factory near Detroit, Michigan. A new analysis by the Dallas Fed finds that over the last year, manufacturers have announced $40 billion in investments in new large battery factories in the United States. However, the U.S. still lags far behind China in the geopolitical race for EV supply chain dominance. Also in clean energy, global renewable energy developer European Energy unveiled plans this week to build several utility-scale solar and wind power projects in the United States over the next four years, totaling about 10 gigawatts capacity. That is a lot. 
And finally, President Biden traveled to Colorado on Wednesday to designate his first national monument protecting an historic World War II era Alpine Military Training Center from development. Polls show 85 percent of Colorado residents support creating the Camp Hale Continental Divide National Monument. Democratic Colorado Senator Michael Bennett spent years trying to get Congress to act to preserve the site, but was blocked by Republicans. At the signing ceremony, Bennett thanked the Iraq War veterans and tribal nations who worked to protect Camp Hale, which is now a magnet for wildlife and the state's outdoor recreation industry. The result is a victory for Colorado's environment, our $10 billion outdoor recreation economy, and the legacy of public lands we owe the next generation. At this point, I will take any victory that we can get. Indeed. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Take them where we can find them these days. <laughs> Thank exactly. you very much, yes. Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated. It is always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, feel free. Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. We have no paywall there, at least not yet. Hopefully not ever. Thanks to those of you listeners who support our work and keep us on the airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Because we are 100% listener-supported. We rely on you. Thank you if you've already donated. If you haven't done it recently, bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you in advance for those who are going to now. <laughs> Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the fa- Did I thank Desi Doyen, our producer? I don't remember. Well, but thank you, Desi Doyen, our producer. I'm uh, on. Drop me an email. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. I will see you there. Clearly, I need a nap. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck.